in Mercy Hill. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of being able to open up God's Word and teach this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to be camping out in, if you've got one of our uh, Bibles that look like this, it's on page 902. And if you don't have a Bible at home or if you've got an old Bible and you need a new one, feel free to take one of ours with you. It is our gift to you. Uh, this morning has already been awesome. I, it's just a, a good reminder that we're family, and I loved having the kids up here. Artem, you rocked it. That was awesome on the recorder. It was great. It was great. Well, we have uh, started, last week we started a, a new sermon series that is really a, uh, a part of a national campaign from the Southern Baptist Convention trying to encourage every church and every person in every church to start praying for at least one person that you know that doesn't know Christ yet as their Lord and Savior in hopes that you'll get an opportunity to, to invite them to church and ultimately share the gospel with them. And so we made a challenge last week, and if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, before you leave today, in the lobby there are prayer journals, and inside that prayer journal you're going to find a bookmark, and in, on that bookmark there is a, a card that can come off and I would encourage you to write down that person's name, or maybe you've got a few people that you would like to start praying for. Write it on that card and give it back to me. I've been praying for all of the cards that were turned in last week. And so I would encourage you, if you were not here last week, by the end of today, before you leave today, I want you to write down a person's name that you want to commit to praying for them over the next month. And in this sermon series, we are just going to continue to, to focus on who's your one. And so in light of that, uh, last week in, in the afternoon, I got a text from Laura Cook. And since I know that she loves to stand up in front of crowds, I asked her to come and share the story of God opening up a door for her last week. Okay. It's fine. Okay. So... Um, our sermons are always online, so I had someone talk to me and say, so, like I saw the sermon, who's your one? Do you have somebody that you're uh, praying for? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And um, I said to the person, I'm not sure if you really know what it means to be saved and what we're, our one person we're praying for is that they would be saved. Do you know what that means? And I just went right into it of, well, you know, Jesus, Son of God, died, rose from the dead. You follow him. And she was just like, yeah, I kind of, yeah, that sounds familiar. So we um, kind of talked about the, the person that I'm praying for, and she's got a person that she's going to be praying for. And it was really neat because... Um, I didn't really know much about um, what she believed in. She is uh, not a Baptist. So it was interesting to talk to not a Baptist and see what their, I guess, understanding of what it was to be saved, to find out we kind of agree on it. And then um, we both are going to be praying for someone. And it was just terrifying. And I don't like putting myself out there. So if I can do that, 
anybody can do it, and it, I didn't die, I didn't throw <laughs> up on anybody, and it turned into a really nice conversation because I just took myself out of the equation. I was like, okay, uh, I'm, all right, I see the opportunity, God, I'll, I'll just, okay, fine, and it went amazing. So I just want to encourage everybody, don't be afraid, because if that door opens, it's opening because Holy Spirit's just going to take over and do it for you, so just let it happen. Thank you so much. One of the things I love about that story is not only did she take an opportunity that was presented to her, and she's melting right now, <laughs> but, uh, but she actually, if, if you didn't catch it, the, the person that she was talking to now has a one of their own, and so they've begun praying for this, and so it, it's, it's catching and so I love that. I would love, and this is a, a movement through the whole SBC that thousands and thousands of churches are going to be emphasizing this. And so I would love to see just millions of people being impacted by the gospel as we begin to pray for them individually. You may, you may not be able to share the gospel with everyone, but you can share the gospel with someone. And so during this sermon series, what we're talking about are five attributes of somebody who is just sold out and passionate about sharing the gospel. And so I mentioned these last week. These are the five attributes that we're going to talk about, five attributes of an evangelist, and we're all called to be an evangelist. Joy, compassion, hope, holy unrest, and courage. And so last week, I started with the attribute of joy because joy naturally flows out of us into praise. That's just naturally what happens. At the heart of evangelism is the desire for you, you to share your joy in Christ with others. And so the greater your joy in Christ is, the more of an impact you're going to have on other people's lives and the more you're going to see other people come to Christ and, and know that joy. In fact, growing in maturity as a Christian is essentially this. It's you growing in joy for Christ and lessening your joy for things of this world. That's essentially what it means to mature as a Christian. So every day there's this battle in our heart to find things that will grow our affections for Christ and let go and, and not do the things that grow our affections for the world. And so this week now we are going to be talking about compassion, which is another really vital attribute and it's necessary if you're going to be effective in evangelism. Now, I, I've seen people that are passionate about evangelism, and unfortunately, they don't have a whole lot of compassion. But they're not very effective. In fact, I never see them effective, and, and they often will push people away from Christ rather than draw them to Christ. Compassion should be a primary motivation for us through to share the gospel. So if joy is like a fountain that overflows out of us, into praise and into evangelism. Compassion is like a rope that tugs at our heart towards people that are hurting. And since we live in a broken world, the reality is everybody's hurting in some way, shape, or form. And so we need to recognize, first of all, compassion is not easy. Often it's, it's messy. When we see somebody that's hurting, our natural response often is to turn the other direction because we can't bear to look at their pain. Compassion can be painful. If we truly enter into somebody else's pain, we're going to suffer along 
with them. Often compassion is costly. We get so close to people that we end up absorbing some of the consequences of their bad decisions. Because compassion is so difficult, often what we do is we stop at empathy. That we're okay with feeling bad for the person, but it stops there and never moves to to action. Often we lack compassion because we haven't fully realized how much compassion has been given to us through Christ. And because of that, when we see somebody else that's hurting, we're like the Pharisees and we're prideful and we looked... We look down on them. We judge them. Or we fail to, compassion, to have compassion because our own problems are just consuming us. To have compassion, you've got to stop looking at the mirror and start looking at other people. And that just doesn't happen naturally for us. And so compassion is difficult. Now, the good news is that God has given us a tool to grow in our compassion. The Bible is full. In fact, the Bible is really the story of God's compassion for us. That's the whole story of the, the Bible. From beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Think about it. One of the first acts of compassion in the Bible is in Genesis right after the fall. Adam and Eve have just sinned. They've rebelled against God. They've eaten the forbidden fruit. They've broken the one rule that God has given them. And what, what are they? They're full of shame. They're, they realize that they're naked. They're trying to hide from God. And what does God do? Well, he sacrifices an animal and gives the skin of the animal as clothing for Adam and Eve. And that is a beautiful picture of the gospel, if you think about it. One, it's a reminder that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so he offers the first animal sacrifice, and then he covers their shame. And from there on out, from that moment on, it's compassion, compassion, compassion. Uh, think about the, the story of Jonah. Uh, the, uh, the story of Jonah is pretty remarkable. Um, you think about it, you, and you know the story of Jonah. If you grew up in church at all, you, you got this prophet who God says, go to Nineveh. And he's like, no way, I'm going to go the other direction. And so he tries to go the other direction. God says, nope, I'm going to swallow you. Or I'm going to have a fish swallow you whole. Well, he survives that experience, which is pretty miraculous. And he decides, okay, maybe I need to obey God. And so he goes back to Nineveh. And God was telling him, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent or I'm going to destroy them. And so he goes and he does that. Just a short sermon says, look, repent or God's going to destroy you. And surprisingly, the Ninevites listen. And that's usually where we stop the story. But don't forget the last chapter of Jonah. The last chapter of Jonah, if you go to Jonah chapter 4, it's pretty remarkable. Jonah starts off the chapter and he's just furious. He's angry. He's mad. Why? Because God showed compassion on the Ninevites. And he even goes on to say the reason that he fled and he went the other direction wasn't because he was scared of the Ninevites. It was because he hated them. And he knew that God would have compassion on him. And he actually, he quotes a passage uh, from Exodus 34.6. And Exodus 34.6 is really interesting because it's the very first time that God describes himself in the Bible. And it, in Exodus 34 is actually, this verse is the most repeated verse in the whole Bible. The, the Bible repeats this verse and goes back to it over and over and over. But God is talking to Moses and he says this. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so the first adjective that God uses to describe himself in the Bible is compassion. Uh, It can also be translated merciful. And so over and over, we see God's compassion. I I think a couple things. Some people... They, they struggle with, okay, why did God allow sin into the world? We would never know God's compassion, the depths of God's compassion apart from sin. He shows us his glory through his compassion. Some people, they struggle, they, they look at the Bible and they say, it seems like there's a different God in the Old Testament from the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems wrathful and vengeance is what he's all about. But the God of the New Testament is all about grace and mercy and compassion. But that's not how the Old Testament prophets saw. That's not how Jonah saw God. He knew that God was going to be compassionate. And so we're going to open up our Bibles today to this chapter in Matthew. And what I want you to do is just gaze at the compassion of Christ. I mean, he is the the image of God. The perfect image of God. And what is Christ most known for? And as we look at this passage, I I think we ought to marvel. It should amaze us that the holy God himself was willing to take on flesh and blood, walk amongst us in our broken, our fallen world, and yet he was known primarily for his compassion. You think about it. You would expect him to come and it would be perfectly right for him to be full of anger and frustration at every corner as he looks at our sin, as as he looks at the people who have committed treason against him and have rebelled against him. But he's not known for being full of anger. He's known for being full of compassion. It's not hard to see the compassion of Christ in the Gospels. He even gets to the point where he absorbs the consequence of our sin, experiences an excruciating death. Now, there's 10 specific passages in the Gospels that mention Jesus' compassion. And it would be a great study for you to go through. Every single one of those is like a window into the heart and the soul of God. Today we're just going to look at this chapter because over and over in this chapter you see the compassion of, of Christ. Nothing can match it. The chapter starts out, I'm going to summarize a lot of it, and then we'll camp out at the end of it as there's a summary of the chapter at the very end. But the chapter starts out with Jesus healing a paralytic. And in Luke's version of the story, this is the guy that his friends bring him on top of the roof. They can't get through the crowd, and so they literally dig through the roof to drop their friend down to see Jesus. And what Matthew doesn't share that detail, but what he does emphasize is what's most important about that story is that Jesus doesn't just heal this man. He says, your sins are forgiven, which was huge. He was blowing their minds because who can forgive sins other than God himself? In fact, he's accused of blasphemy in this moment because either he's actually God or he's crazy or he's lying, right? Only God can forgive sins. And One of the things that I want you to notice as we walk through this chapter is that whenever Jesus does a miracle, whenever he shows compassion, there's always a lesson that goes along with it. He's always trying to teach something significant. And so there he's teaching, look, I have the power to forgive sins. After that, he heals this man. He 
he goes on to, uh, and again, nothing is without purpose. He goes on and he invites the most unlikely of person to follow him. He goes to a tax collector, Matthew, and he says, follow me. And the, the Pharisees question him, why do you hang out with tax collectors and, and sinners? And this is his response. Look at uh, the second half of verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so in Jesus' ministry, we see this over and over, over. He was drawn to the sick, the hurting, and those who recognized that they were sinners. Those who think that they're righteous, those who think that they've got it all together are not going to receive compassion from Christ. We've got to understand our own brokenness if we're going to be filled with compassion. After he calls Matthew, he goes on and he teaches a short lesson on fasting. And then right after that, in the next 16 verses, he heals four people and he raises one person from the dead. And so this ruler comes to Jesus, he kneels down, and he tells him that, look, my daughter has just died, and he asks Jesus to come and put his hands on his daughter in hopes that she might live. So Jesus agrees to go to see this girl who has just passed away, and on his way, he's interrupted by this woman who has been bleeding for like 12 years. She sneaks up behind Jesus, she touches his robe, and immediately she, he, she's healed. And Jesus calls her out. Not to shame her, but to encourage her because of her faith. And he, he even endearingly calls her her daughter. And it's a reminder that often compassion is not convenient to us. Often it's those interruptions that derail our plans. Those are the places where God uses us the most. Uh, this morning, I, I, was, I got online and I saw that Cassie had put a, a blog out there. And in the blog, she talks about eight things a, that you need to hear. If you're going to be a foster parent, in that first week, there's eight things that you need to hear from somebody. And it was a great, you, you need to look it up. If you haven't read it yet, you need to look it up. But the number one thing she said was this, there will never be a convenient time to foster. And she goes on to write this. She said, granted, there are, some, there are some seasons that it is not wise to foster or take in other kids. And everyone, everyone's family structure is unique. But overall, life doesn't stop. And if one is waiting for the perfect moment to begin, that time will never come. And as our family was preparing for our first placement, our friend, a very seasoned foster mama, said, shared, if everyone waited for that perfect time, no kids would ever get placed or loved on. That's true. If we are so focused on our own agendas, we will never show compassion to somebody else. Well, Jesus goes on to raise this man's daughter from the dead. He then goes on to heal two blind men and a man who is demon-oppressed and mute. And then we pick up in verse 35. And this is where I want to kind of camp out today because here you see really a summary of what's been going on. And so Jesus went throughout the, the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And we saw the crowds 
He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so Jesus has been going around teaching and healing people throughout Galilee. A crowd has begun to follow him. And he looks out over the crowd and he sees lostness. He sees a group of people without a leader, helpless and harassed. And the word here for compassion in the original language, I love this word. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, I think it's like splagna. I'm not sure how you pronounce it exactly, but it's supposed to be like an onomatopoeia. You know, English teachers, you know what an onomatopoeia is? It, it's a word that sounds like what it is. And so like kapow, okay? And so if you say splagna, say, like say it and put your hand on your gut, say splagna, okay? You feel your gut, right? Because the word literally means a deep pity that's, that is formed from the innermost parts of your gut, Okay, that's what that word means. That's where compassion rises out of. It's a, it's, a, it's a feeling that comes deep down inside of us when we see somebody that is hurting. That's what Jesus describes as happening to him in this case. And it moves Jesus, okay? It doesn't just move him to feel something. It moves him to action. Notice he calls his disciples to begin to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. And then in the very next chapter, he gives authority to his disciples to heal and to cast out demons also. So Jesus didn't just have compassionate feelings. It led him to action. It led him to action. Later on in Matthew 14, 14, again, it was compassion on the great crowd that led him to perform healings. It says, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Again, in chapter 15, his compassion prompts him to feed the masses. His compassion always led him to action, sometimes extreme action. This is what led him to touch a leper. Jesus taught his disciples. He expected his disciples to have that same kind of, of extreme compassion. He said, don't just love your neighbor. You've heard that before. He says, love your enemy. And when the lawyer asked him, okay, who's my neighbor? What does he do? He shares the story of the parable of the good Samaritan, who is a Samaritan loving his enemy, a Jew. He had extreme compassion. The most extreme example, of course, is the cross. There is no, more, no better example of compassion than Jesus showed than on the cross. I mean, he shows empathy when he puts on flesh and blood, and he, he feels our pain, and he knows our suffering through that. He showed compassion while he was on earth, and he healed, and he cast out demons. But on the cross, he didn't just enter into our pain. He paid for it. He absorbed the full wrath of God's fury that we deserved. There is no greater example of compassion than the cross. Also on the cross, and you see it in this passage that we're reading today, God, Jesus alleviates both physical and spiritual suffering. He has a holistic view of compassion. 
Many people today focus on healing and working up, helping people alleviate physical pain, but Jesus went beyond that. On the cross, he experienced both, right? He experienced excruciating physical pain as his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, but he also experienced spiritual pain as God the Father turned his back on his son. We learn from Christ that compassion includes both words and deeds. And so on the cross we learn that, look, making somebody physically more comfortable in this life, that's not really compassion, not fully at least. Because ultimately you might be making them feel comfortable on their way to hell. But on the flip side of that, if all we do is warn people of hell and we share no concern for their physical suffering, we derail the message of the gospel because we're not reflecting the character of Christ. Jesus both warned and wooed. He both warned people of the reality of hell. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. I think that's part of what fueled his compassion is because he understood fully what it meant to suffer the wrath of God. But he also wooed people, cared for them, healing them, took care of their physical needs, feeding them. See, compassion is key for evangelism because for evangelism to be effective, you need to cultivate the soil. That's what, that's what compassion does. It cultivates the soil so the seeds of the gospel can be fruitful. And so here's my working definition of compassion. Compassion is a, a deep, gut-wrenching feeling of affection and pity for somebody who is suffering that leads to both seeking to alleviate their physical pain and proclaiming the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. It has to have both to be true compassion. That's what Christ shows us through his life and his death. And so how do we cultivate compassion in our hearts? That's a question we need to wrestle with this morning. Often cultivating the soil in our hearts involves first removing rocks. We've got to get the rocks out of the way. And one of the reasons we lack compassion is that we're often consumed with ourselves. We need to stop looking at the mirror, like I said before, and start looking at others. Or maybe for some of you young people, you need to stop taking selfies and start seeing other people. Seeing always precedes feeling. Let me say that again. Seeing always precedes feeling. Jesus saw the crowds were harassed and helpless, and then he had compassion. He saw the bereaved mother and had compassion. He saw the blind men and had compassion. In the parable of the, the prodigal son, the father sees his son and then has compassion. I think social media has definitely not helped to foster compassion because it, it robs us from face-to-face -face interactions with people that, that, that's where empathy is born. Perhaps the biggest obstacle that we have for a compassionate heart is that we're far too often focused on ourselves 
on our own problems rather than others. And so we need to look for ways to start seeing other people. That's why I love Mark 12. What we're doing here uh, on the first and third Wednesdays is we're offering a community meal. It's not just about giving away free food, though. It's about building relationships. It's about talking to people that are hurting and getting to know their lives, about entering into their pain and their suffering and, and getting to really understand who they are. And so I would encourage you, if you participate in that, don't just serve food. Have conversations. Talk to people. Get to know them. Start seeing people. And then secondly, we need to realize our own need for compassion. When we see people who are broken, we ought never look down on them because we ought to recognize we're just as broken as them. Our brokenness might look differently than their brokenness, but we're just as broken, and that is so necessary. If we're going to have a heart that is full of compassion, we need to recognize the amount of compassion that has been offered to us on the cross and the amount of compassion that we need. When we lose sight of all that Christ has done for us on the cross, it's hard for us to show compassion for others. But the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the the more we recognize that what Christ went through to pay for that sin, the easier it is for us to have compassion towards others. If you want to grow compassion for others, Spend time daily bathing in Christ's compassion for you. Spend time daily dwelling on how Christ entered into our world, entered into our pain, took on our flesh, our blood, felt all of our pain, felt all of our suffering. Dwell on the fact every day that Jesus sees you. He knows all of you. He knows all of your warts. He knows all of the, the skeletons in your closet. He, he knows every sin you've ever committed, every thought, every evil thought that's ever come across your mind. He sees it all, and without hesitation, he looks at you and says, I love you. I want you. I'll die for you. We should marvel at that. We should dwell on that. The gospel is this, is that you and I are more wicked than we ever realized, and yet God cares for us more tenderly than we could ever dream. That's the gospel. And so as we grow in recognizing the compassion that we've been offered on the cross, the more compassion we're going to have for others. If we're going to live up to our name, Mercy Hill, every day we've got to work on displaying the mercy and the compassion of Christ. We need to become more and more willing to, like Christ, enter into other people's pain and suffering. We need to be willing to get messy at times, to, to sacrifice and to, to suffer with other, others. We need to seek to relieve both the, their short-term physical pain and suffering and also be willing to share the gospel with them to prevent them from the long-term spiritual suffering that they will experience if they're separated from 
God for all of eternity. And so where does that start? It starts with your one. It starts with you praying for that person that you know doesn't have a relationship with Christ, that has not yet surrendered their heart to Christ as Lord and Savior. And then looking for opportunities. I would encourage it. In, the past, in fact, if you, haven't, this, if, you, if you got one of these last week and you haven't started reading the journal, this is really good. They put this together. It's really well written. And in this past week, you should have prayed uh, for, for the, the physical and, and the spiritual well-being of your one. I would also encourage that you would pray that God would give you boldness to proclaim the gospel to them. And so let's be a a church that lives up to our name. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for for the mercy, the grace, the compassion that you've shown us. And I pray as we move into communion, we would be reminded of what you've done on the cross for us and what it cost you to have compassion for us. And we would be willing to pay the price of compassion to reflect that to other people. Help us to be conduits of the compassion that you've given so that our community and our world would know your compassion because they know us. Help us to see others, not to turn away from them when, when we see their pain, but to turn towards them with love just as you turn towards us. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.